Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Darren Aronofsky's Mother. Or maybe with the exclamation point in the title, we should say, Mother. <laughs> Jeb. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you say the small M. Maybe you just whisper that letter or something. Yes. So I'm here in the studio at Slate with Sam Adams, the editor of Browbeat, Slate's culture blog. Hello, Sam. Hello. And with Forrest Wickman, our culture editor-in-chief. <laughs> how are you, Forrest? I'm great. I'm so glad the spoiler special is back. I know yeah. you guys already like sang Hosanna's last week, but I would like to add one additional Hosanna as a longtime fan of the spoiler special. Yeah, me too. Yeah, this is the second one after the relaunch. And we've been really lucky to have it and Mother to spoil in these few weeks because they're both highly, highly spoilable. And the kind of thing that if you've seen the movie, you want to talk about it and hear what other people are saying about it. And as may be more the case with the movie we're talking today, if you don't want to see it, but still want to hear people talking about it, this is kind of the ideal place. I think that was also true of it. I did not see it. I was very eager to listen to the spoiler special because I was too much of a scaredy cat. All right. Well, if you are a scaredy cat about intense movies, um, this is definitely one that you might want to think twice about going to. But I'm going to do my usual and before we start spoiling, go around and get your sort of basic critical reaction and whether or not you would send total strangers uh, into the strange twisted inferno that is Mother Forest. Uh, it's interesting that you phrased it that way. I would both say that I liked this movie and have come to like it more as I've talked about it more with other people and read about it more. It's just a fun movie to talk about. I think it's a f- more fun to talk about than to watch, arguably. But w- I have not, you know, formally endorsed this movie to anybody because I'm so afraid that I'll send somebody and then they'll come back furious at me for uh, suggesting that they see this movie. Yeah, it definitely inspires those kind of intense reactions. And I saw it alone and came out dying to talk about it with someone. And uh, and also just noticing that everybody else on their way out was having heated pro or con conversations or just big head scratchings. All right, Sam, what about you? Uh, I would gleefully recommend this movie to complete strangers just for fun. <laughs> um, just, just to see what happens. Out of sadism. Um, yeah, it's, it's a hard movie to say, you know, you like Exactly. I didn't have a sort of profound, like, psychological reaction to it. It didn't it didn't shake me up as I know, you know, it has some other people. I for one thing, I kind of saw it in the middle of the Toronto Film Festival. And that's just sort of when you're seeing like five movies a day. It disperses the impact. It does. It does a little bit. Yeah. Um, But like Forrest, I mean, I've just found it really like I like talking and thinking about this movie. And it's been a lot of fun to watch the very polarized reactions to it. Indeed. So let's start talking and thinking about it. And it's worth noting also as we begin, and this is, I think, was somewhat of a surprise to the critics who were so kind of excited to chew it over after Toronto, is that it completely tanked at the box office, right? It's It made, I think, $8 million or something in its first weekend. And this is a movie that cost maybe 30 to $40 million. So, um, so it definitely was not a commercial success. It hasn't exactly been a critical success either, but it's been a critical sort of word of mouth conversation piece. Yeah, um, it's also worth noting that it achieved a perfect F cinema score. So cinema score is this kind of survey they do to people when they come out of the movie about whether or not they enjoyed the movie. And, you know, most movies perform fairly well. A perfect F is pretty rare. 
I will say that I had never heard of CinemaScore until everyone started quoting the CinemaScore grade oh, of this movie. I was eagerly awaiting, like actively. I Googled, you know, Darren Aronofsky, Mother CinemaScore, because I was so eager to find out what it was and anticipated that it would probably be enough. I mean, I sort of saw that coming in a way because CinemaScore is in a way kind of the most relevant thing that it grades is kind of the effectiveness of studio marketing, because it's basically like did people who went to the theater get what they thought they were paying for. And if you thought you were paying for a nice romantic comedy and you got a nice romantic comedy, you get you give it an A. Uh, Mother, there's really no way to sell what this movie actually is. And Paramount just kind of sold it as like, oh, it's kind of like Rosemary's Baby and it has Jennifer Lawrence in it. Um, and that was not, <laughs> not really what it is. And, and it struck me even beforehand as kind of the most either you know, brilliantly devious or just straight up dishonest um, studio marketing campaign since Steven Soderbergh's remake of Solaris, which is kind of like, it's a George Clooney romance in space. Um, and that similarly got an F cinema score. I don't know that this movie would have done any better if they had advertised it accurately, but... Uh, it's hard to imagine what that advertisement would be as no. well without it having any spoilers. I mean, except that it would be maybe a more arty trailer or something yes. like that. Okay, so let's get into what actually happens in this movie. And I think we should be straight up front and very specifically spoily on the assumption that people may be listening without caring about seeing the movie at all. So uh, as the movie opens, we're in an unnamed place. We never learn where the location is, but it all takes place at this one house, this beautiful, strange looking sort of vaguely Victorian house in the middle of nowhere, ringed by trees and what later sort of starts to seem like a paradisiacal garden or something like that, but it is not named in any way. Can you describe, Sam, so I don't have to do all the yammering here, the flashback or sort of atemporal moment that we get at the very beginning of the movie? I can certainly try. Um, so we open kind of, a, you know, bloody Jennifer Lawrence standing in kind of sacred heart posture in front of this background of flames. Uh, that's just kind of one shot. And then we move to Javier Bardem's character, who is just called capital H him in the credits taking this kind of crystalline egg out, putting it in this stand, and then the this big kind of country house, which has been burned down and covered with ash, just kind of rejuvenates itself. And then Jennifer Lawrence's character just kind of materializes under the sheet in this bed and, and comes to life. Not to get too into the weeds right off the bat, although I'm very eager to get into the weeds with this movie. Do we know that that was Jennifer Lawrence in the first shot? Because that is what I briefly assumed and then thinking about it more and thinking about how in the last shot of the movie it is somebody who is not Jennifer Lawrence or appears to not like does not look like Jennifer Lawrence exactly um, and so we learn that there's this kind of cycle that takes place with like slightly different women I assume that the woman in the first shot is like the previous kind of incarnation of Jennifer Lawrence but not in fact Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, that's very possible, especially because she's so kind of cremated at that point that you can't yeah. be sure who the actress is playing her. And that would go with the logic of the movie. So, but I would say that all of that that you just described, Sam, could easily be interpreted as a dream that Jennifer Lawrence is having, which is, in fact, I think how most of the audience probably interpreted it, right? I mean, if you start off with this apocalyptic vision and then the next thing you see is the main character waking up in bed, right? You can assume that that's her nightmare. Is that the assumption you guys were going with? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I thought maybe dream, maybe flash forward. Ultimately, I think it's actually just completely chronological. Like that is the last thing that happened before Jennifer Lawrence's character woke up is that like the previous woman in this house died before everything started all over again in a beginning. Right. <laughs> okay, so so now we get into the movie proper, which leaves behind that apocalyptic tone for quite a while and for the next hour or so takes place in this 
slightly mythical feeling, but basically realistic domestic atmosphere. She and Javier Bardem are married. They're living in the house. He is a poet who was once successful and famous, if there is such a thing as a famous poet, I guess, in this universe there is. But he's now creatively blocked. And uh, and she seems to be sort of his muse um, and also basically his housewife, who is spending all of her time restoring this beautiful house and cooking and cleaning for him. Um, then about, I don't know, half an hour into the movie or so, maybe a little bit less than that, there's a knock on the door, and who stands there but Ed Harris as another unnamed character who's called only Man with a capital M in the credits. And what's the excuse again that Ed Harris uses for why he's knocking on their door well, out of the middle of nowhere? Yeah, I don't remember exactly. He says he thinks it's a B&B. At right. first. That's right. Yeah. He was misinformed that their that their house, which does look like you know the kind of place that could be a B and B, is this place of lodging. It doesn't really make sense, but it not making sense is very much part of the scene. So Jennifer Lawrence is saying, "I don't trust this guy. We shouldn't let him into our house." But Javier Bardem's character, him, is very happy to welcome this stranger, especially after it comes out that the stranger is a fan of his previous work. So there are at least like three different, um, I would say, widely interpreted allegories in this movie are we going to start sort of uh, breaking those down yeah, as we go let's, i feel like we should do, do that as we I go mean, so 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 as we as we have it so far what what allegorical scheme can you see being put into well place? so I, I sort of started to allude to it when i said in a beginning which uh will be completely baffling to anybody who has not seen this movie and read about it a, a, a bunch but so one uh, very strong thread and I, w- I would say allegory that's running through this movie is that it's basically an allegory for, well, the biblical creation and also kind of all of creation. And specifically, I guess Aronofsky, when he was researching Noah, his previous movie, um, started to read about this interpretation of the first line of the Bible that uh, interprets it as saying in a beginning rather than in the beginning. The inference being that the world is like continually created and then destroyed and then created and then destroyed. That's how I think in the biblical interpretation, you interpret the the first few scenes. And I, I guess to uh, jump into another key element, uh, you know, Jennifer Lawrence, I think is most consistently interpreted as like Mother Earth as Earth. And then Ed Harris credited as man is Adam and by extension, mankind itself. The plot of the movie is basically Genesis and Revelations with a little bit of the Gospels in the middle. So, yeah, so we have, um, you know, the the creation. He said the movie kind of starts on on uh, day six in, in Genesis one. Adam shows up. He got um, that granular about it. Huh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then Adam shows up. Then Ed Harris sort of manifests this lower back wound where one of his ribs might be. Then and Michelle wife, Pfeiffer shows up yes, as his, his wife. Then Michelle Pfeiffer shows up as his wife. Then their two sons show up, one of whom kills the other, just like Cain and Abel. And it sort of goes on through uh, kind of the, the birth of a child and a sort of gruesome first communion and then all the way into Revelations and the apocalypse. Right. I mean, I think that the bi- the biblical allegory is so clear, both, both because Aronofsky's talked about it extensively and because it's just, you know, there's lines of dialogue in the movie at one point near the climax of the movie, Javier Bardem says, I am I, right, which is the statement that God makes about himself in the Old Testament. I mean, it's right out there. And I think it's it's too easy to just say it's a it's it's a movie about the Bible, right? I mean, it's a movie that's using this biblical allegory structure to to do something else. And the question is, what what exactly is is that thing? 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so now we're in the kind of middle third. And this is one of my favorite parts of the movie, actually, because every moment Michelle Pfeiffer is on screen yeah. is is very fun. I mean, this movie, although, it, you know, everybody talks about it like it's this sort of torture to endure, has some very funny moments. And most of them, I think, come in these these scenes with Michelle Pfeiffer, who, how would you describe what she's like? She's this sort of skanky, <laughs> like, middle-aged, I don't know, what 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 is she? She's a... She's sort of this, like, sly passive aggressive Aaron obviously talked about it as kind of a home invasion movie and and part of the the sort of underlying emotion of the movie is basically that Javier Bardem keeps inviting people welcoming people into their house and Jennifer Lawrence who I think the first time you see her is like plastering a wall just like wants them to get the fuck out so she can like finish her house and they just keep keep coming in and you know tracking mud over her carpet and they just keep coming in and tracking mud over her carpet and breaking her sink um, and Javier Bardem kind of doesn't even seem to seems to somehow just totally block out that his wife is experiencing these feelings. And so Michelle Pfeiffer is the one who kind of really knows where to to stick the needle right. with her and to say, you know, well, we're just, you know, where are we supposed to go? You know, how can you not welcome us in? And, yeah, the passive aggressive is a great, great term to just kind of describe her 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 technique. And um, and she's also very sort of sexually insinuating, you yes. know, which is what I mean by kind of calling her a skank. Like, I mean that very lovingly. <laughs> but we see her we, we come upon her having sex with her husband, which she sort of is essentially doing in order to be caught by Jennifer Lawrence. She also follows Jennifer Lawrence into the basement, which becomes a big horror site later in the movie and watches her doing laundry and starts questioning her about her sex life. And so there's kind of this sense that she's a she's a voyeur. And also maybe that she, if we're going to get allegorical about it, is the expression of some kind of sexual id that Jennifer Lawrence herself can't express. I think my experience of watching the movie was that I so early on got interested in the sort of biblical aspect that I kind of stopped paying attention to any character detail that was like (laughs) not about that, which in retrospect, I kind of regret but so you are remembering all of these things about like what she was like as like an actual believable human person which I just like immediately lost (laughs) all faith in this movie as something like I'm seizing on that is she's one of the few who has that's true I mean she's great in it don't get me wrong I appreciated that but I was immediately thinking like okay you know this is Eve that study up there is the Garden of Eden they essentially eat the forbidden fruit which is that crystal they like break it and then they're kicked out like literally like locked out of it and I kind of lost track of the fact that it was supposed to be a bed and breakfast or whatever. I mean, what's, what's great, too, is that scene where they do they do kind of go into Javier Bardem's study, which is kind of, you know, roughly the Garden of Eden. And they break this sort of precious object they've been told not to touch. And what, what you know, I love about the movie is that scene also plays as if it's just like your house gets sober and you tell them not to go and run room and they don't listen to you and they go into that room and they break your shit. And that's it. Just just, and that's not an allegory for anything. No, that's that's just just an an allegory for like when you have bad house guests. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite interpretations of this movie that I think has been kind of going around on Twitter. If you guys know where to properly cite it, please speak up. But it's basically that this movie is just like an introvert's nightmare. And I think on some level, I very deeply related to it. I I have to say that there there are moments too 
Well, we'll get into Javier Bardem's character, but I also think that some of the stuff it has to say, while, you know, maybe kind of screamingly obvious, some of the stuff that it has to say about patriarchy and right. kind of the, the violence of this artist-muse relationship between the Javier Bardem character and Jennifer Lawrence's is really powerful, too. And that also, um, you know, is not necessarily just allegory. It's, it's also like a real relationship. But you're completely right for us that Aronofsky seems quite uninterested, and this is really to the movie's detriment, in in creating characters as we know them. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence is on screen in extreme close-up for, you know, 98% of the movie, and I don't feel like I had any sense of who her character was at all. Even the way she's costumed is kind of in these beige, draping things, and there's something kind of blank about her. I've seen some critics and people responding to this movie saying, oh, Jennifer Lawrence's, you know, incredible, grueling performance. I mean, it seems very like it took a lot of physical endurance for sure. Um, but there's a, there's kind of a blankness. And that's in a way not a critique of her, but of how she's being directed and written. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that I think it certainly doesn't work as any sort of remotely realist or conventional text, but it arguably just doesn't work as text at all. It's kind of all subtext and like all parable and all allegory and so that's why it's hard to like interpret her performance i mean one thing we should add just because it's kind of incredible is that apparently she during the most agonizing scene in the movie which we will get to uh she like physically hurt herself just through her crying and she ruptured something inside her. Do you guys remember what it was? Like her diaphragm. Yeah. Yeah. I think she dislocated a rib or like tore her diaphragm diaphragm or some combination of those two things. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, you know, in, in the most reductive way of looking at acting, it's like, okay, that's impressive. At least in the sense of like acting as uh, almost like athletics or something. But, but it also, to me, I mean, when I think about, for example, just Lars von Trier's name popped into my Mm -hmm. head. But when I think about like abused leading ladies, you know, and the kind of uh, sacrificial, aspect of having you know your beautiful young muse i mean to to really turn the film's allegory on itself like she is aronofsky's muse and in fact it's not irrelevant that they started dating around i think after the movie wrapped but you know she is now his girlfriend in real life and the idea that she was sort of going through this actressly crucible and proving her her worth to me is not necessarily that leaves me with a bit of an icky feeling yeah i've kind of been waiting for that criticism to arise and i think it ha- i mean i'm sure people have been making it but it doesn't seem to have boiled over into outrage as far as i've seen that this is like a deeply misogynistic movie in the way that you know any lars von trier movie would be uh, decried that way. And I think there's basically there's like two reasons, at least for it. One is that it hews very closely to her perspective and very much, you know, she is a much more likable character than the Javier Bardem character. And by extension, the like director, artist, filmmaker type character. And two, I suspect this is the reason that Darren Aronofsky keeps like fiercely denying that this was an intended level of meaning for the movie at all he keeps aronofsky keeps saying like the movie is really just about climate change which to me is like preposterous i mean there's a moment at the end of the movie where him the javier bardem character calls jennifer lawrence his inspiration you know quote unquote and he's an artist and it like it's just you can't deny that it's there but i suspect that aronofsky is really trying to avoid the autobiographical reading because right. he just doesn't want people to start like looking through his dirty laundry. Oh, yeah. He said straight out, it's not about Rachel. Rachel Weiss, his girlfriend right. and the mother of his child, I think. And But th- like it is. Right. Uh, and I, do, I mean, I do I do believe that to an extent. I mean, I've, I've read people sort of reading this, you know, interpreting the movie as kind of an artist muse thing. And I, I don't know, bristle is quite the right word, but I, I kind of recoil from that reading a little bit because for me, as in some of Lars von Trier's movies, like particularly Antichrist, I mean, I think the one of the things you're seeing in the movie is kind of a male director kind of, you know, expressing his vulnerable side, like 
putting that into the female character. And I think that, you know, technically Javier Bardem is the poet, but I mean, Jennifer Lawrence's character, mother, I mean, she's the one who's pregnant. Like she is the one who's actually creating things in the movie. And and I feel like there's a dynamic between them that is something about, you know, maybe the, the kind of the two sides of the artist's personality. I mean, that, that, you know, Bardem's character is very much like people come to the house and he wants to welcome them and he wants to sign autographs and he wants to do press conferences and he's so excited. when Yeah, he's like a up. YouTube celebrity. Or yeah, and, and Jennifer Lawrence is like, can you just get the, like, I'm pregnant. I just want to be like alone and quiet so I can like focus on this thing that I'm making. And to me, like that, that back and forth, if you kind of, if you think of them as sort of two sides of, of, a, of a personality in the way that, um, kind of some of the, you know, Gnostic gospels kind of, you know, think of, of God and Satan as as sort of two halves of the same being. And Bardem's character is actually, there's like a sort of holy image of his character that people are passing around. And at one point you see that someone's kind of scribbled devil horns on it. Um, so that's, I think, one of the things that clues you into that reading. And I think that is like, that's a kind of potent and, and interesting way of, of looking at it. But it's just generally like a lot of movie and it's so, you know, there's so much kind of crammed into it that arguably makes it sort of incoherent, but also makes it, you can't really kind of stick to one reading because right. as soon as you pick one, then something else is wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so let's let's get into some of the weird shit in the middle of the movie that doesn't even fit into any of these allegorical schemas, and then we'll get to the total like breakdown of, <laughs> of meaning in the last third or so. So there are some things that even in these you know comprehensive blog posts trying to make everything adhere to some some schema don't really make sense. And one of them is this strange powder that Jennifer Lawrence's character keeps dissolving in water and drinking in the bathroom and what that might mean. And another is the apparent kind of organic nature of the house and the way the house keeps revealing these things like wounds in the wall and, you know, blood coming out of the basement wall and what seems to be like a beating heart in the walls of the house or something like that. So I want to hear you guys' thoughts about what is that stuff doing in there? And you don't have to make it fit perfectly into some some structure but just why is it in there at all well i mean i think the second thing the like bleeding walls and such actually do fit in pretty neatly when you start thinking of jennifer lawrence's character and the house both being essentially one with each other and both being you know mother earth and earth both the heart that's like beating in the wall seems to kind of be jennifer lawrence's character's heart and so so that that fits together to me in a way that works quite coherently the yellow potion i don't really know i'd be curious whether sam has a better theory i I mean i think it it worked for me in the sense that it raises this whole additional possibility that uh you know maybe she is uh losing her mind and this is either a a hallucinogen or a, a medicine to help her with that I think there are many things we can interpret in there that are kind of interesting, but it, it's true that it does not map as neatly, as far as I can tell, onto any of the other interpretations. Right. I mean, it's the potion, which, by the way, is wonderfully like production design. I love the way the potion looks and mm-hmm. the close-ups on it, and it's, it's lent this kind of mystery in the, way, in the way that he films it. But that lends itself to this sort of um, Polanski's repulsion kind of reading of the movie, which seems to make sense for the first half or so, where you think, well, maybe everything that we're seeing here is just happening in Jennifer Lawrence's mind, and, you know, in fact, there's this is all 
all perfectly above board and, and she's going insane. Yeah, that, that of, though, is really given the lie by the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it has some of that kind of, you know, Victorian horror movie in here, almost like a kind of like a Rebecca feel to it. Like it's just a woman kind of locked up in this old house going mad. Um, there's this sort of substantial kind of gaslighting quality to it when, you know, Bardem just not only doesn't he doesn't tell Jennifer Lawrence that he's happy to have all these people in the house. He just keeps acting as if like she hasn't said anything, um, which drives you crazy just watching it, let alone being her. Yeah. And there's also this other interpretation that we should maybe just acknowledge that, uh, you know, you said Victorian. Some people have specifically connected that potion to this um, story, The Yellow Wallpaper. I don't know if you guys know it. I, I, I Oh, yeah. The Charlotte Perkins Perkin Perkin yeah. novel. Which, I, as, I, as far as I can tell, maybe you know better, it doesn't actually have any yellow potion in it but uh there is all this stuff about the yellow wallpaper and it is about a woman who's kind of like locked away in a room upstairs and by her her husband and like slowly seems to lose her mind and or is gaslit so like i can see why that has traveled around at the same time i guess somebody also asked one of the producers and because all the filmmakers here have been commenting uh very openly about what was intended and what was not they have said that no one involved in the making of the movie uh read that book and was thinking of that so it's funny that the yellow kind of tincture that she's pouring into the glass, it's like the one thing that Aronofsky won't talk about. I mean, he's been, you know, to my mind, and I wrote a post for, for Rabbi earlier this week, kind of talking about this. He's been, I think, maybe too forthcoming about kind of this movie is an allegory about climate change. Like, here's what it means. Um, and I, I think it's kind of gets less interesting the more he explains it. But for some reason, that yellow potion is like the one thing that he just, well, that's that's the secret I'll take to my grave. That's the one thing I won't tell he's you. He's actually said that or he's just avoided the no, question? No, he's actually, he said, he said like, that is the secret I will take to my grave. I think it's because he, he doesn't know. Uh, I was going to say, I think, I think it's just a detail that he's realizing doesn't really make any sense in there and he's trying right. to get out of it. Wait, can I just throw out one more WTF? That I don't think I've seen anybody <laughs> even speculate about. And I didn't think of it again until this morning, which is there's this scene where Jennifer Lawrence like goes to a toilet and it's clogged. Oh, yeah. And there's like a rat in it or <laughs> no, something. Like a, it's almost like a, a or crab f- or a big louse or something. It's like this weird kind of. Yeah, it's it's a it's a. Is that a shelled is, creature? Is that a plague? Because we get like some of the the, the seven plagues, and there as well. We get like frogs in the basement and stuff like oh, that. Oh, that's so, true. Yeah, maybe uh, the plague maybe that's... of the crabs. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, do, I do not know all the plagues off the top. Yeah, of my you head, haven't read so. the book of toilet crabs, <laughs> chapter and verse. <laughs> yeah, toilet crab was another total WTF. Thank you for that one, Forrest. Okay, so let's let's get to the le- to where things get really really crazy in the last third or so and how they get really crazy. I guess like the the, the, the last act you would say is kicked off by this wake that, that that ends up being held at their house against, again, Jennifer Lawrence's will for one of the two sons of Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer. So the two sons, the Cain and Abel figures who are played by Donald Gleason and Brian Gleason, who are the yep. sons of the great Irish actor Brendan Gleason. One of them kills the other, right? We've established that. That's that's something that happens early on and, and it really makes you realize that you're not in any sort of realist world where like the cops would be called if total strangers were murdered in your house. But there ends up being this this wake that turns into a complete rager and people are destroying Jennifer Lawrence's house. And how do things crumble from well, the wake gone wrong into the Right. So world specifically, so again, if in, in the biblical allegory is informative here. People basically become disobedient and start rapidly propagating, just as happens after the fall, which, of course, leads to the flood, which in this case is a broken sink uh, that then causes a flood in the house, which then causes everybody to flee, at which point, if I remember correctly, him, the Javier Bardem character, very aggressively comes on to Jennifer Lawrence's character, 
Um, they start having sex. There's. It's it not becomes, that he comes on to her. Doesn't she kind of goad him into it? Doesn't she say something about you can't even fuck me anymore? Because we yes. haven't even mentioned that it was implied that he's impotent in the first part of it's, the movie. It's a complicated sex scene. I mean, it starts fairly violent and then it and then she is uh, into it again at some point. And then and this becomes this like somewhat immaculate conce- conception because she's very pregnant the next morning and immediately knows as much, which then leads to a sort of clearing of uh, the Javier Bardem's character's head. And he starts writing his like next masterwork, which then makes all these people come to the house all over again, which then leads to a sequence that I would describe as like thousands of years of human history told through like one very rowdy house party. So what are some of the stages of human history that are enacted? Well, I mean, it, 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 this is the part of the movie where it becomes so chaotic that it's hard to ever keep track, really. Like, all of the sudden, there are police in riot gear. There are people locked away in prisons who appear to be, you know, refugees or immigrants or something in the way that they're depicted. There are people credited as sex slaves. There are, like, wars and rumors of wars. There, There is um, the rise of, like, organized religion in this house. Uh, we see... With Javier Bardem as the god figure for the people right. raiding the house. And then they start, like, putting ash on people's heads like it's Ash Wednesday or something, which... You know, the symbol there is always your dust and to dust you will return, which in this case is like quite literal and happens, you know, 20 minutes later. Kristen Wiig shows up, which I think to me is the moment that it becomes very clear that this movie is definitely intentionally funny. I mean, I guess it's somewhat clear with Michelle Pfeiffer earlier, but like there's a kind of campy reading of this movie that I also enjoy and I think is intended we, but i should... but i don't experience it as camp at the time and that actually makes me think of a response to this movie that really surprised me which was ao scott's in the new york times i mean he wasn't crazy about it but he thought it was very funny his his essential response to it was that it played as a comedy and that anybody who didn't find it a comedy was misreading the movie and while i agree that there are some moments that that play in that campy register i wouldn't say that like experientially perceptively watching this movie felt comedic to me I feel like in some ways, I mean, it's almost closer to farce in the sense that things just start happening and the rules completely start breaking down and you're sort of you're losing your grip on things. And it's kind of funny, but not in the way that you laugh necessarily. I mean, the the Kristen Wiig thing was definitely that almost felt a little out of kilter to me tonally because it's just like, hey, look, it's Kristen Wiig. And she's shooting people execution style. Yes, but it definitely has that kind of you know, insane, unmoored feeling of kind of high-speed farce. I mean, there just aren't a lot of places where you kind of sit back and laugh. And if you do laugh, it's probably as much out of, you know, shock or surprise. Well, well I was going to say, laughter in the last third. I mean, even if you remain somewhat emotionally unengaged, which would be very possible given how kind of thinly drawn the characters are, just the stuff that you're forced to watch is so sadistic that I, it's hard for me to imagine you wouldn't have some sort of physical response of, of revulsion and fear in the last third of the movie. I feel like we're all tiptoeing around the biggest <laughs> laugh moment in the movie that probably got the most laughs in my screening. So just to fast forward quickly, you know, she's pregnant. She has the kid. She doesn't want to let the kid, the baby, like go out into this crowd. Wait, wait, wait. But you're 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 going so quickly here that we're we're not understanding that she's in labor in the midst of this right. party that has essentially degenerated into like a world war. And her contractions seem to be like earthquakes, which I think is another thing from the Book of Revelations that like there are earthquakes that signal the coming of the end of the world. And then finally, he takes the baby and puts it out with 
all of these hordes and immediately they kill the baby and eat it, which caused many people in my theater to laugh. Really? <laughs> Including myself, I think. They, they, <laughs> I mean, I was disgusted. I got physically sick in so a way. So you were I laughing didn't at the audacity expect. of the of how gross <sighs> I was it, like, it was? My experience of watching this movie was both like kind of admiring its ambition and also snickering at it simultaneously, and I was not sure the whole time I was watching it, it, I was not sure whether I thought it was working and I kind of wavered back and forth. And sometimes when I thought it wasn't working, I was laughing. I often didn't know whether I was laughing at it or with it. Yeah. I mean, the more we talk about it at the beginning, when we all did our, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, I didn't really give mine. But I feel like distance from this movie has has decreased my appreciation of it. <laughs> Aronofsky is unquestionably really good at pushing the audience's buttons and provoking sensations. But the more I think about kind of what this movie does to its audience, the more I resent it. One of the more sadistic things he does to the audiences is, you know, staging classic Christian communion in a very literal sense where this baby is actually kind of shredded up and passed out to, to tell the, the worshippers in front of an altar. I had my eyes shielded during that part, which <laughs> yeah. shows that I was not experiencing it at that moment in an A.O. Scott comic register. And that just may be like a kind of parental, you know, like automatic reaction or something. But after all these extreme close-ups of this newborn, and he actually got a very young baby, unlike the usual three-month-old baby that plays a newborn in movies. And so you really do have this sense of its brand newness and vulnerability. And uh, and it's just a very brief shot of, you know, where you see sort of like the viscera of and the baby spread around. Rib, but... I think there's some rib cage in there. Yeah, like, oh, you... yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... It's... And I mean, I, I yeah, I have to say, I considered putting a trigger warning on my my review. I mean, this is a spoiler. I'm glad it exists because we can get into that moment and that scene. And to whatever degree I might have spent some parts of this movie bored or amused or alienated or not knowing what to make of it, there was a, really a sense of like ugh, of just wrongness and a sense of like I shouldn't be seeing this and it's gone too far. And obviously, that's the uh, reaction he's trying to evoke from his audience. But yeah, that was another moment where I think I felt resentful of, you know, of Aronofsky's desire to foist his allegory upon our eyes at all costs. It's not the most like sophisticated provocation. It's a little more like thumb in the eye. Right, kind of right. <laughs> but but nonetheless, nonetheless, there's a real cruelty there. Yeah. All right. <laughs> See, we're all stopped dead by the eating of the baby. We can't we can't go on. Well, so what happens next? Uh, yeah. So what happens next is, uh, I mean, uh, before this, there have been references to how it's starting to get hot in in the house. That's something that Kristen Wiig's character says. And there have been, you know, we know that this is all building to a fire. And sure enough, Jennifer Lawrence's character is infuriated by the fact that they just ate her baby. <laughs> See, now you're laughing. Uh, I like the understatement. Like, she's miffed. And uh, we should say, so this is the part where uh, her acting in that scene was apparently so intense that she, like, uh, ruptured her diaphragm or something. So, yeah, she just, like, grabs a lighter and starts running towards the furnace downstairs. And apocalypse. She blows the entire house up, at which point... Well, I guess the the one crucial thing we have to talk about here is, you know, she says something about how she has nothing left to give, which I guess Darren Aronofsky is a big fan of the book The Giving Tree and kind of stole it from that. How like, oh, when the giving, the giving tree, tree is just like a stump <laughs> at the end. Right? Can we all agree that The Giving Tree is just evil? That book is it's pretty messed up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the end of this movie is very, very giving tree. So we've 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 made a full circle and returned to that image. I don't know if it's the exact same shot, but the same image from the beginning of the movie of a, a burned and bloodied Jennifer Lawrence or some woman at the heart of this inferno. And then what happens for the very end of the movie? It's like a full temple of doom where he says, you still have your love to give and then reaches in and grabs her heart, which is the crystal from the beginning of the movie, which he then places on the mantle 
the house rises from the ashes and everything starts all over again with a new character in Jennifer Lawrence's place. Right. So what do we think of this ending? I mean, one thing you can say about it is that that's one moment where you don't have to scratch your head about what the allegory means. It's incredibly clear, right, that, that the what the crystal is at that point, that it is essentially the, you know, the hardened, calcified love that he takes from each woman. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to read it as a as a relationship or, you know, a, a marriage allegory in some way that that he's this narcissist who's sort of, you know, preserving the idea of this woman's love for him in order to go on at her her expense. So that's very clear. But if you're operating in the ecological allegory realm, then in a way, this 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 makes it seem kind of OK that the world keeps destroying We're itself. We're moving to Mars. Because well, <laughs> it's, it's just going to recreate itself again. Well, it's, so a little, it's, a it's a little like the response to when people say, you know, used to say kind of save the planet and the response being that, well, the planet's going to be fine. Like we're the ones who in trouble you know, so there's going to be an Earth regardless of what happens. And it'll know, just be ruled by giant cockroaches. Yeah. You know, we might die out. I mean, there's going to be a planet probably with some sort of, of life on it, but we may not be among it. So it's kind of that idea. Is the end, do you think the end is supposed to leave you with a sense of kind of sinister? Is it? Is it kind of like the, that Nietzschean idea of eternal return where it leaves you with a kind of n- nauseated, sinister feeling? Or is it supposed to be uplifting, which some people argue the Nietzschean return is supposed to be? Is, it, is there supposed to be a sense of renewal and rebirth? What does he want us yeah. to walk out of the movie feeling? I mean, I mostly got the sinister thing. I agree that like this is one of my least favorite aspects of the movie in the sense that like there is so much anger in the movie. Like there, I really think that, you know, this movie can be defended in the sense that it leaves viewers extraordinarily angry about the destruction of this character who represents Earth or Mother Earth. Right. And then it does kind of undo that to an extent i think that's the best defense i've heard sam but it it's definitely makes it less viscerally infuriating in a way that people might be kind of transformed by it i think and it makes it easier to just be like eh. i mean as a climate change allegory it's not exactly an inconvenient truth i mean i think it's you know extraordinarily misanthropic in that way i mean basically the idea is humanity is going to be wiped out and we deserve it Right. So then so then he wants you to walk out feeling like bummed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so mission accomplished. Yeah. Well done, Darren Aronofsky. <laughs> I mean, one thing I will say about this this movie's failure at the box office is that I think it should make lovers of independent film and, and cinephiles, people who are interested in getting good movies out there, sad. Whether they care about this movie or not, whether they plan to see it or not, whether they liked it or not, because Paramount was sort of brave to to put put this movie out there and market it in the way that they did. They certainly suffered financially for it. And it seems like that might be a disincentive for other big companies to invest big money in a big special effects laden movie that's this sort of um, creatively, uh, I don't know what you'd say, idiosyncratic. It might be. I mean, Paramount, to their credit, and this is extraordinarily unusual for a major movie studio, is kind of leaning into the failure. They put out a statement after the first opening weekend, say, you know, when Netflix does this, when they make a daring movie that doesn't make any money, everybody praises them for it. Well, that's what we did. And they actually put together an ad, which I think was on YouTube and then taken down because they got a critic's name and I think might be up now, but basically doing that. Either people either love it or you hate it, but you have to see it. So they are kind of leaning into it in, in their marketing. I think... It's not a movie that should have opened wide on 2,500 screens behind a a sort of deliberately misleading ad campaign. That was just a a ticking time bomb kind of waiting to go off. So I think if it had been made, you know, for an independent film price and released as an independent film with independent film expectations on its box office, it probably would have performed reasonably well along those lines, you know, as a $40 million studio release. You know, that's a 
pretty tough sell probably in any era. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think this is like this movie is mostly successful as an art movie. It's just that it was made and marketed as like a mass mainstream movie. And in that respect, it's a it's a failure. Like it's not going to be entertaining to most of its audiences. I saw Darren Aronofsky and I think it was in the Times piece by Milena Rizek said like something about how at the end of the day, it's my job to entertain. And it's like, I don't think I don't know if you really believe that. Like, that's not the movie you made. Yeah, that's not hardly any of the movies that Darren I would, Aronofsky I, Yeah, I don't think made. I would describe any of his movies along those lines. But you say it succeeds as an art movie? I'm not sure that I feel that I completely agree with that either. If this had opened, you know, it at only at some tiny theaters and been, I think it might have been even more savaged by critics if it had been sort of presented as, you know, Darren Aronofsky's. Well, I mean, I guess I, guess I mean art movie in the sense that Viewers should not go in expecting conventional storytelling, conventional thrills and so on. I do think what this actually is, is more of a blend of like art filmmaking and like exploitation filmmaking. And that is a kind of movie that I often like for me and for a lot of people who are not going into it, expecting it to be like the sequel to Lights Out or whatever. For a lot of those people, it's it's working. And I include myself among those those people, I guess. And one thing I'd say, like. Another interpretation of the movie that works for me and actually unifies many of the allegories that I mentioned to Sam before is to me, you can kind of view this entire movie as about how it's impossible to create a perfect work because you have to share it with other people in order for it to be worth anything. But like people are inherently imperfect and you cannot predict what they will do with it. They will literally tear your baby to shreds. Right. Yeah. And like that is a little bit what has happened with the movie, kind of ironically, but I think the movie also anticipated that reaction. Yeah, it is definitely one of those movies. I mean, almost sometimes to a painfully, plottingly obvious extent that is about itself and about its own creation and its own storytelling. I mean, if nothing else, this is one of the funnest movies to talk about that's come out in 2017, I would say. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much. We should wrap soon. We've been talking for almost an hour now about Mother! Exclamation point. Um, But I really, really enjoyed it. So come and spoil again with me very soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is June Thomas. We'll be releasing another spoiler special in two weeks, so please join us then. For Sam Adams and Forrest Wickman, I'm Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you soon.